You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. This is season two, episode three. Welcome back if you've joined us before. And if not, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Yes, we have an action-packed episode for you today. We do. And on a serious note, we have a serious episode for you today. Well, it's not the whole episode is going to be serious, but there's a very serious topic that we're going to discuss, kind of the centerpiece, I guess, of this episode. We're going to sit down with Christina Olney, who works for an organization called In Defense of Christians, and she's going to be talking with us about what's going on in the Middle East, more specifically how minority groups like Christians in the Middle East are being persecuted and sidelined and killed. And how that relates to the broader refugee crisis. Right. So these are very important issues, and we wanted to highlight them. Uh, so listen in on the interview about how uh, how there are some ways that you can help, uh, how you can make a difference in what's going on. And then we're going to bring back Muriel, whom you've heard before in episode one of this season and last season, to talk about two different articles that came out last week about men and women and work and family and how you balance all those things. So that's a good conversation as well. But, but before, before we do, we all, do that, all that, we're going to talk about James Bond and Sam Smith's new single. Right, so James Bond, first of all, the new, the new one's coming out is called Spectre, and of course it's spelled in the English way, S-P-E-C-T-R-E. And is this the fourth one or the third one? Uh, the, of the Daniel Craig installments? Yes, yes. This is the fourth one, right? So Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace. Oh yeah, that's one I never saw. And then Skyfall. Yes, okay. Skyfall, yeah, exactly. And Daniel Craig is going to be James Bond? Daniel Craig will be reprising his role. Is, did I use that okay. correctly, reprising? I think so. His role as James Bond. I don't so think so, it, but... You don't think so? It's close. Oh. Daniel Craig will be coming back as James Bond. It'll be great. And I heard that Sam Smith was doing the music for this. Now, yes. Sam Smith, an amazing musician. I'm a big fan of some of his work. Yeah. Amazing guy. He's a really amazing voice. Very right. talented. Very, very talented. So when I heard that he was doing the theme song for the new James Bond film, I was pretty pumped about this. Now, I was a huge fan of the Skyfall theme. Yeah, Adele is... Which was done by Adele. If beat. you've not heard this, go on YouTube and look up Adele it's Skyfall. So I think it's probably one of the greatest cinematic pieces of music. That's of high the, praise. Of the last decade. Okay, I, I will oh, go of okay, all time. Okay. Of the last decade, though. <laughs> That's fair. I can see that. I mean, it is exceptional. You have to listen to this. So he has big shoes to fill. Huge shoes to fill. Okay, so I'll set the stage with that. Now, let's talk about the actual song. So those are my expectations, maybe a little bit larger than life, granted. But then I heard the actual song by Sam Smith. Let's listen to how it begins. Strong footing. Strong Strong footing, right? Yeah, Yeah, he's like setting this up. It's the orchestral classic Bond theme, yeah. right? So he's setting himself up to really succeed here and to, to fill those big, those big shoes. Okay, then we go into the verse. Let's listen in on this. With you I'm feeling something that makes me want to stay. I'm prepared. 
Okay, not as strong, I think. Yeah, I... He didn't take it where I was expecting him to go. Right, right. I don't feel like it's James Bond. Right, I'm also kind of losing that that quintessential bondness. Right, but, but very but beautiful. It is, and it's it's also not unsalvageable. Like, I feel like if, if he pulls this out correctly, it can be a good move, right? Definitely. So I think what we have to do is go to the chorus and hear how he ties it all together, see if he pulls it off. Because if he pulls it off, it could actually be spectacular. But if he doesn't, it'll be it'll be something else. So let's hear the chorus. I'm sorry, what on earth just happened? <laughs> Sam Smith sang really well. Okay, great singing. I'll give Sam that, but that not was a not a Bond, Bond theme. Yeah. Oh my I'm expecting, gosh. I mean, I don't want to go into this too much before we bring our guests on, but I'm expecting macho, I don't know, just a lot of energy, a lot of bravado. And I mean, again, orchestral power, not some risky, like... dangerous. Right. I don't know. That wasn't the vibe I was getting. Man, not at all. Not even remotely. All right, so joining us now to talk about this, well, what I would call a disaster, but perhaps <laughs> he'll be more charitable, is Jordan Short. Now, those of you who have been listening to us for a while will recognize Jordan from episode five of season one, but Jordan's back, and in fact, he's one of our contributors, one of the contributors to Vernacular Podcast, uh, and he is uh, very well-versed in all things music and art. He's a musician himself. He and created our outro song. He created our outro song. So when you listen to the outro song at the end of the podcast, that's it's all Jordan, Jordan right band. there. Yep. So Jordan, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, Zach and Sally. It's good to be back. I mean, what what, what just happened, right? I mean, like, right. <laughs> that song. Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll get into that. Yeah, we will. I want to I ask you first. You're a musician. You're a guy who appreciates good music. What do you think of the Bond genre in itself for kind of being a creative space to make great music? Yeah, okay. First of all, I'm a huge fan of the Bond films and, you know, the Bond songs. It's it's interesting. Sometimes uh, the songs have a life of their own, right, apart from the film, the, the films themselves. And that's kind of a fun thing, you know. There's been... Uh, a variety of people that have done Bond themes. Uh, you know, uh, we have artists, and then we have, you know, singular artists, I should say, and we also have bands. And each song is kind of a, uh, a snapshot into the time. I think the, the great thing about, about Bond songs is they don't have to be timeless, uh, but what they need to do is basically, like I said, be a snapshot of a particular bond in a particular year. And they're, they're a cultural Polaroid really, just as the bond movies are. Hmm, So, so I think, I think, you know, that's these, these songs don't have to be earth shattering, but I think they should have a bit of a bond whimsy to them. Nice. Yeah, and I think that's sort of like the common thread that we need to tie them together, right? So they don't need to all be uniform or timeless, but they need to all be, you know, like I said, that quintessential bond. Right, right, exactly. Now, you know, full disclosure, I'm personally, I'm more of a fan of the bombastic Bond song. Sure. Um, you know, you have Tom Jones's Thunderball, uh, Paul McCartney and Wings's 
Wingses, Wings, Paul McCartney and Wings, <laughs> live and let die. Right. These are just kind of like more grandiose. Right. Especially right. Uh, in the chorus. Yeah, I mean, even even Chris Cornell's "You Know My Name" from Casino Royale. Uh, that's I, I was a huge fan of that. Yeah, that's a good one. I even like Jack White and Alicia Keys' "Another Way to Die." Uh, well, and of course, though, every time you pair up Jack White and Alicia Keys, it's going to be spectacular. So it's going to yeah. be spectacular. You know, I think I may be in the minority on that one. That one seemed to be panned a little bit critically, but I was a huge fan of it. Um, Goldfinger, that's such a good, such a good song. Shirley Bassey, she kills it, right? Diamonds are forever. Yeah, so all of those songs, even though they may have more melancholy elements, they have larger choruses. Uh, they're kind of fantastic in their imagery. Um, Adele's song oh, from yeah. Skyfall, I right? Just love that one. Beautiful, amazing. Um, but even the imagery is kind of quirky and fun, just like a Bond uh, theme should be. Right, right. So I think all that history brings us to currently with, you know, Sam Smith's writing on the wall. So just Sam Smith on his own, do you think he can pull that off? Well, you know, I think he can. Uh, I've been a fan of Sam since like 2013 when he was uh, featured on uh, the Naughty Boy song La La La, which has kind of fun, quirky lyrics. And uh, Sam's voice, it, it, it carries that song, which, you know. It's, a, it's, it it's an amazing voice. It's one of it the most incredible voice. voices I've ever heard, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and a huge fan, right? I think he can do it. Uh, he and it doesn't even have to be an upbeat or a uh, you know fast song either. You yeah, know, it doesn't need slow. to be bombastic, like you said. No, no. But for some reason, this song, especially in the chorus, kind of lets me down. It feels like it came from Sam's diary. Yes. Yes. Which is great for a Sam Smith song. But I feel like with Bond, you have to go a little bit bigger than that, right? So when you have um, AHA, they did, you know, they did The Living Daylights. And, uh, you know, that was clearly AHA, the band. But they were doing Bond. Right. You know, Duran Duran, when they did Bond, they did it right. And I think it's funny because all of these bands are totally of their time. They're totally a specific sound, but yet they captured the essence of Bond in their own way. Um, and I think, I think when I first heard this song, I was kind of like, hmm, I, I don't know. Writings on the wall, the verses were great, the pre-chorus was great. But then I read this article um, from Spin Magazine uh, written by this guy, Andrew Untenberger, and he basically put out the idea that Writings on the Wall was too normal. It was too Sam Smith, mm. and it needed a little more James Bond yeah, nonsense. And kind of bombast in the lyrics, even. Yeah. So he wasn't faulting even the song structure, but he was just saying, 
it's missing. It's missing Bond. It just sounds like a Sam Smith song. Right. Well, now, Zach, didn't you hear an interview with Sam Smith saying that he was trying to make Bond more vulnerable? Yeah, I was listening like to NPR. I think I mentioned NPR at least once uh, once an episode on this podcast, but I was <laughs> listening to an NPR interview with him, and he was basically saying that he was trying to make James Bond feel, you know, seem very, very vulnerable. Uh, but like you said, Jordan. I think that's where your diary comment comes in, because... I don't yeah. want to read James Bond's diary. Yeah, I mean, you know, I listen to Sam Smith's, you know, something like, you're not, uh, I, wait, I'm not, I'm not the only one, right? Uh, I think it's I'm Only not the one? one or Only One. Something you know, like you know what song I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yes. That's kind of what this song feels like. It's, it's very vulnerable. It's Sam Smith being very emotional. And I like, I like those types of songs, which is why I'm a Sam Smith fan. I just don't want my Bond song to be that. Right, right. You're correct. It is. I'm not the only one, and and I agree. I don't think you are the only one in yeah, feeling this right, way. Right. Um, you know, Sam Smith obviously is is brilliant in what he does. Um, he does it so well. He does it better than than most, if not all. But uh, you know, with with this Bond, it's just like I want a little more ridiculousness. Uh, because that's what we go to Bond for. Bond has always been an escape. No matter what's been going on in the world, these Bond movies come out at regular intervals, and they allow us to escape. I just want a little more, a little more ridiculousness. Uh, yeah, it's it's just interesting. It's it's interesting. Again, you know, we're just commenting. Right. But right. Uh, these are only our own opinions. But <laughs> It's true. And though I do hope that this song is an anomaly in the movie itself, I hope that Daniel Craig is channeling his Skyfall self, not, <laughs> right. his, his, not, not, not his writings on the wall performance. self. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, I was thinking about it in comparison to the Adele Skyfall, which, again, is just my favorite, but it that's there's so many layers to that song. You don't automatically get it, like what she's capturing exactly. Whereas with this one, I kind of feel like it's, hmm. I don't know, it's too superficial or it's too, we just pulled back a layer and we get to see inside and now there's no questions left. It's just Bond being sad in a corner and crying to himself. Yeah. 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 That'd be a lame Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. So basically you know, they recorded it in under half an hour and then recorded the demo. And then the final vocal that we hear on the single is actually just the demo vocal. Wow. Right? They didn't even record it again. Wow. They wrote it in 20 or 30 minutes, recorded it once, and they're done. Yeah, I would have expected the Samsons would have taken a little bit more time since this is such a big opportunity. Come on, for Sam. <laughs> Come on, Sam. We love you, but <laughs> just just give us a little more, you know? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure that when. Uh, Jordan Short gets picked up to do a Bond theme. He'll spend a little more than 20, 30 minutes writing. Yeah, the you're theme. not going to drop the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right. I'm I'm sitting by my phone, um, just waiting for the call. But rest assured, I will spend at least an hour writing it. Per, I mean, I would expect at least sixty minutes, maybe even ninety. <laughs> maybe even ninety. Well, I look forward totally. to hearing what you come up with when you do that, yeah. Jordan. <laughs> we'll bring as, you back. <laughs> as do I. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. I appreciate your insight. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's it's always fun talking music. Have a good one. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah. See you guys. All right, welcome back. We're here with Christina Olney, who works in government relations for an organization called In Defense of Christians, 
or IDC, which uh, calls itself an American-based uh, nonprofit organization whose mission is to ensure the protection and preservation of Christianity and Christian culture in the Middle East. And we brought Christina on to talk to us about basically what that means, why IDC exists, and uh, in broader terms, tell us about the refugee crisis and where the mission of IDC fits into this global refugee crisis that That's we've heard so today. much about in the yeah. news. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you, Zach and Sally, for having me on the show. Excited to be here with you guys. We're definitely excited to have you. If you wouldn't mind, just uh, give us 30 seconds about yourself. Absolutely. So I um, joined In Defense of Christians, IDC, about a year ago, and I'm the Director of Government Relations and Outreach for the organization. I've lived in Washington, D.C. Um, for about five years now. Prior to that, I was in Australia, and I've been uh, focused um, primarily in my professional career on um, international religious freedom, um, with a particular focus on the Middle East. Great. Thank you. Now, let's talk about IDC a little bit. My understanding is that this is a pretty new organization. Is that right? That's right. So IDC was founded in late 2013, and... Uh it was co-founded by our senior advisor and former executive director, Andrew Dorn, um, and Tufik Baklini, uh, the president of the organization. And essentially, they were inspired by the crisis of Christianity in its cradle in the Middle East. Um, and uh, they traveled to the region. And the way our organization started is we began um, taking documentaries. So they traveled to Egypt, to Lebanon, uh, to Syria, to Iraq, and they began began um, interviewing the Christian communities in these areas and other religious minorities. And um, they realized that there was a, a need for an American voice that was um, focused exclusively on the plight of religious minorities in this region. So uh, they came back to Washington, D.C., and um, we got started as, as an organization really in um, 2015, actually, or 2014, rather, which is when we held our first big event. Um, so our organization really grew out of our first big summit, which was held in September of 2014, uh, protecting and preserving Christianity where it all began. And that event got a lot of international news and headlines because um, we hosted uh, all of the Eastern patriarchs in Washington, D.C. for the first time since the 15th century. So this was a historic event. So we're, we're basically talking about the bishops of the oldest uh, geographical provinces of Christianity. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So if, if we could, I want to kind of couch what the IDC does in the context of the broader refugee crisis, because I think some of our listeners are, are going to be less familiar with the work that you do and the reason for the work that you do, and more familiar broadly with the refugee crisis that's going on. Sure. So I, I remember probably a month ago or so now, these pictures hit the news of this young boy, probably two years old, dead face down on the beach. Absolutely tragic, gut-wrenching stuff. And I think that really woke up the world to the fact that there was this massive refugee crisis going on where hundreds of thousands of people are coming from conflict zones in Africa and the Middle East and fleeing into Europe. Um, and so desperate that they're sending their children yeah, alone. It's, yeah, exactly. exactly. And, the, and these problems are... are creating more political problems in the European Union who can't quite figure out how to reconcile the uh, the Schengen plan for open borders with uh, accommodating these migrants and how the migrant flows are disproportionately affecting some countries while others are basically getting off scot-free and not having to provide any services. So there's this huge element there. 
Uh, and, and now there's a, a humanitarian push to have these countries accept more of these people. But it sounds like what IDC is focusing on is another harsh reality of the conflict zones that are creating these refugee crises uh, and really uh, these conflicts that are um, massacring lots and lots of people, many of them Christians. That's exactly right. So we um, have been focused not only on the crisis that these communities are facing, but the essential um, force that these communities have been for uh, community, for charity, and uh, as filters of de-radicalization for centuries. Um, so you're absolutely right when you say that um, it has taken uh, the the world a while to wake up to the reality of what's been happening happening in these countries, and uh, IDC has been um, advocating. Um, for uh, for a heightened awareness not only of the crisis that's going on, but to really understand um, that, you know, there not only needs to be a humanitarian response to these issues, but there also needs to be an awakening to the fact that these communities could actually be wiped out from the cradle of Christianity. And that would be um, not only a, uh, a national security um, disaster for the United States, States and for the Western world, but it would really be a crisis for Western civilization. So um, while there are many, um, many, many thousands of uh, Syrians and Iraqis who um, are fleeing uh, their homes in droves, and that image uh, of the little boy who was on the Syrian shore um, drowned and dead really drove that point home, that people are so desperate to escape the, genes the uh, genocidal wave of terror that ISIS has been inflicting on them, um, that they are willing to put their children, their vulnerable children, on boats who uh, are risking their lives. Um, um, and there are other images that people have seen. I'm sure you guys have seen interviews with mothers who are asking governments in Germany, in France, um, all over Europe to, to take their children and to find homes for them because they don't believe that they can provide adequate care for them in their own home countries anymore. Um, so there does need to be a humanitarian response to all of these people who are seeking uh, refugee assistance. But there also needs to be um, a deeper awakening to the fact that there are the Christian communities of the Middle East um, are a vital uh, force for good in the in the Middle East and that we need to protect and preserve those communities. Do we know yeah. what percentage of the persecuted and the the refugees are Christians? Or is that so, a number that we don't have available? Really, I think the most helpful way to talk about that is to um, look at the, uh, the decline in the numbers of Christians in uh, Iraq, in uh, Syria, and in um, Egypt. Now, Egypt is the largest Christian minority in the Middle East. It's 10% of the Egyptian population. In Iraq, prior to 2003, there were 1.5 million Christians, and they estimate that there are now about 150,000 remaining. So I just so, want to make sure I heard you correctly. Sorry to interrupt. Are you saying that 1.3 million Christians have fled Iraq or have been killed since when was the that's, date? That's since um, 2003. So okay. before, prior to 2003, there were 1.5 million Christians, and there are now about 150,000 remaining. We know that um, about uh, 
200,000 Christians from Karakush, which is the largest Christian area in Iraq, um, fled that area alone in uh, June of last year when ISIS first targeted Mosul. Um, the one of the ancient uh, historical um, places of uh, Christianity uh, where the tomb of Jonah is located and many other biblical sites where for the first time in 1600 years, uh, church bells stopped ringing. Wow. So if this has been going on since 2003, why don't we hear about it? I think... Um, there are numerous reasons. One is because uh, many Americans simply um, don't know the story of the Christians of the Middle East. They, many Americans aren't, uh, aren't aware of the ancient history of these communities. Um, as we were discussing before, there are um, an array of Orthodox and Catholic communities that have um, different names. And I think um, sometimes uh, discussing some of those um, uh, I think I think sometimes people get lost in the weeds of um, you know remembering uh, the ancient um, story that these uh, communities have. So I think um, I'm kind of waffling a little bit on this question, but really I think it's because people don't know their story and because there is a hesitance to. Um, really focus on this issue in Washington, especially. And that's why IDC exists, because um, the story of these Christian communities needs to be told. It needs to be told in a uh, unified way. Um, so there are 5 million uh, Middle, Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern Christians now living in America. Those Christians... Um, have not uh, been unified under one um, voice to tell their story. So what we're trying to do for the first time, there are many organizations who are raising awareness about uh, the plight of Christians around the world. We're the only organization that is exclusively focused on uh, the Christians in the Middle East and that is working to mobilize the Middle Eastern Christians in America. So... Um, I think uh, that's, that's the first reason, that people don't know their story and there hasn't been a unified effort to tell that story. And thirdly, I would say that um, there's a political hesitance to acknowledge what is going on in the region. There's been a refusal to acknowledge that uh, Christians are actually being targeted because of their faith. One very clear example of that is when the 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded on the shores of Libya. Um, when the administration spoke about uh, that incident, there was no mention of the fact that they were Christian. So there's clearly a political hesitance to talk about it. And I think once the American people know the story of these uh, Christian communities in the, in the Middle East, they will respond. And that's what we're seeing. So Christina, just to back up to something you said earlier, can you explain why you would call this a threat to Western civilization? I think one of the best representations of this is um, the uh, destruction of uh, Western cultural heritage in Iraq, in Syria, um, and in, uh, in Egypt. There have been hundreds of churches 
that are thousands of year, years old that have been destroyed in all of these countries. In Iraq, some of those churches have been turned into mosques. We've seen UNESCO World Heritage Sites taken over. We've seen, like I said, the tomb of Jonah completely destroyed. Um, these uh, these cultural artifacts are part of the Christian story. And uh, more importantly, I would say um, the uh, these communities, most importantly, still represent the foundation of Christianity in this region. And I think to lose that heritage, that cultural um, heritage in the region in the region would be a tragedy for uh, for Christians all over the world. So it seems like since since that image of the boy on the beach and since the presidential candidates have started talking about the refugee crisis, um, people have been pushing the U.S. to do more. And um, I read recently that the U.S. said that it would take at least 10,000 Syrian refugees starting in oct- October 1st in the next fiscal year. And right. then John Kerry said that they would up, that we would up the, what, we'd normally take in 70,000 refugees globally. And now, I guess he said behind closed doors that they would take 100,000 hmm. refugees. Right. Do you think, is that enough? Is that, is the U.S. doing all it can to, to help the refugees? So um, from IDC's perspective, IDC hasn't taken an institutional position on the question of the refugee cap. Um, Our position is that those uh, families in Iraq and Syria who need who need to to leave those countries should be granted uh, should be granted asylum, whether that's in the United States or elsewhere. Um, but our uh, focus has been on the fact that these communities who want to stay uh, in um, their ancient um, uh, in their birthplace, in their homeland, should have the right to stay. So there is more that the international community should do. And what IDC is advocating for is a safe haven for these communities in Iraq, uh, in the Nineveh Plains, which is the ancient homeland of the Assyrian Christians in that region. And so how does IDC propose enforcing the safe haven or protecting the safe haven? That's that's something that um, we're still working on. We uh, are beginning to um, speak about this to uh, international experts and policymakers who um, have uh, who are who are knowledgeable about the uh, situation and politics of Iraq and um, so we don't you know we haven't publicly announced the details of the plan but there is uh, a plan that we've been developing in coordination with other organizations um, and policymakers for um, quite some time we will be announcing that um, in the coming months so here's maybe a good question to to wrap up this conversation on but we've talked before on this podcast about graham wood's article in the atlantic called uh, what does isis really want and in that article, which is very long, but a very fantastic read that I commend to anyone who's listening, Graham Wood talks about the very apocalyptic aims of ISIS or the eschatological aims, where they think that basically they're helping to usher in the end of the world and the final caliphate. And I'm wondering, Christina, given your work with many of the Christians in the Middle East, if the Christians with which you have worked see this conflict in similar terms? I'd say... Um... I'd say that they do, uh, and I agree that that was an excellent article, and I'd commend uh, all of the listeners to to read it. Um, 
Now, it's uh, difficult to um, get uh, inside the mind of any terrorist, but I don't think that any Christian who is living under uh, the circumstances that the Christians we've talked to in Iraq and Syria are facing would deny the fact that what they are, um, what they're confronting is um, is a genocide, and it is a it is an ideology um, that uh, does not see any place for uh, religious difference in the region, um, and. Uh, what that means is essentially, um, as you've said, that uh, ISIS and um, those uh, terrorist organizations who agree with this philosophy want to essentially recreate uh, the caliphate. The Christians of the Middle East want people to recognize that um, this uh, this kind of genocide has happened before. It's what we saw. Um, it's what happened during the Holocaust. It's uh, it happened first to the Saturday people, and now it's happening to the Sunday people, as uh, Congressman Frank Wolf, who's also an advocate on these issues, has said before. So one more question, actually, before we end. What I think our listeners and even those who don't listen to our podcast, everyone is wondering, what can we do to help? That's a great question, Sally. And um, I think that people can, first of all, um, get involved with these with um this uh, cause that IDC is working for, I would uh, recommend that um, all your listeners visit IDC's website. We have uh, www.indefensivechristians.org. The more people we have around the country who take an interest in this, who get knowledgeable about the issue, and who get involved, um, the more uh, the more weight we're going to be able to have in Washington to move Congress and to move our government for this issue. Um, another step the people can take is to um, donate to organizations who are um, doing, who are actively um, on the ground in the region. IDC is not primarily an aid organization, although we have uh, delivered aid in the region in the past. Um, Christian Relief Services is one organization that's doing excellent work in the region. And uh, thirdly, of course, um, people can pray for um, these communities who desperately need our prayers. Great. Thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for coming on the show to talk to us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been this has been a great opportunity to shed light on a little talked about aspect of this. But fortunately, I think this issue is getting some mainstream press. I remember reading a New York Times article in July, uh, the title of which was, Is This the End of Christianity in the Middle East? And it was shining a light on the very same things that you have been, Christina. So Yes, um, and I just end by saying, of course, the Pope has just arrived in uh, Washington, D.C. today, and uh, he's going to be addressing Congress on Thursday, and we are expecting him to make a mention at some point um, in his visit to the United States about this issue. Um, we actually had a private meeting um, in Rome with uh, Pope Francis a few weeks ago, during which we were able to give him um, a uh, briefing on um, the situation of the Middle East and of, of Christians in the Middle East, including a copy of this genocide resolution, which is now being introduced um, in Congress and which is rapidly gaining more support. So um, we are very hopeful that uh, his visit here and his championship of um, their cause is going to uh, only add to um, the uh, awareness about this issue. We'll stay tuned. Thank you both so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you, Christina. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Bye.
Bye. one of our contributors. Muriel, welcome to the show. Hello. It's great to be back. We're just going to have a conversation about two articles that were recently published. One was in The Atlantic, and that was by, is it Andrew Moravchik? Andrew Moravchik, yeah. Ma- Andrew Moravchik. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> it's a tough um, one. And the title is Why I Put My Wife's Career First. And he is married to Anne-Marie Slaughter, who wrote that famous article in the Atlantic from a couple years ago that we talked to Muriel about in season one called uh, Why Women Can't Have It All, I think. And so he talks about his their family from his perspective. And then that same week, or maybe the next week, Anne-Marie Slaughter wrote an article in the New York Times called A Toxic Work World. And the two definitely are they overlap in their topics. And Anne-Marie Slaughter's, I think, is a preview of her book that's coming out later yeah, this year. Yeah, it's or called, it has come out. No, I think it's coming out. Uh, it's called Unfinished, Unfinished Business, Business. Uh, mm-hmm. subtitle Women, Men, Work, Family. So it should be a really interesting book, and I'm looking forward to reading that. But yeah, like Sally said, this piece by her is just a kind of a preview of that book. But she makes some interesting policy and social arguments in it. So Yeah, so we can start with um, Andrew's piece and... Uh, but obviously, you know, we can talk about both of them at the same time. Um, I, I, I was really intrigued by his article. He basically just kind of went through their life together, but then talked about it from his perspective and called himself, he defined lead parenting and said that he has actually been the lead parent in their, in their family. And that's why Anne-Marie Slaughter has been able to have the career success that she has. Um, and I think and it's interesting to put this in perspective or in context because uh, Andrew Moravchik, for those who those of you who don't know, is a, a very respected scholar of international politics, uh, as is Anne Marie Slaughter. So really, a power couple in the truest sense of the world of the word. So this is not an example of the very talented Anne Marie Slaughter going out and having her career, uh, and Andrew Moravchik, who is less of a public figure, uh, less respected professionally, being a lead parent. No, I mean, he very consciously made the decision to basically forego what would be a very promising career to a degree. I mean, he still has the career and he's still very well respected, but he for he, he chose to forego what could have been and instead opted to be lead parent. Yeah, yeah. And lead parenting, he says, is being on the front lines of everyday life. And he says that while his wife has been very much involved in their kids' lives and even took some time off um, when one of their sons was having a rough time, she has not been the lead parent. He has been the lead parent. He's been the one who's been there um, at at all hours of the night and enforced rules and been to all of their baseball games and piano lessons. Um, and it seems like, I mean, the main point of his article is that more men should feel free to step up and be lead parents. Um, and I, I for one, think this is awesome. I think that that Moravchik's made a very admirable sacrifice for his family. And from what it sounds like in the article, it's it's paid dividends in his family life. And I think that's fantastic. There's one point in the article where he lists the reasons why more men should be lead dads. Uh, and I'll just kind of read them off to you here. First, being a lead dad can be good for your marriage. Uh, he's, he basically says that his wife's achievements make him proud and the balance that they've struck leaves them happier. Second, lead dads have something special to offer their children. Uh, he says he thinks his sons have benefited from having him at home, not simply because they needed someone to care for them, 
uh, but actually because he has unique experience that can contribute to his boy's uh, boyhood. And then third, and the most fundamental reason, he says, is for men to embrace a more egalitarian and open-ended distribution of family work uh, because doing so can foster a more diverse and fulfilling life. I think that's great. Yeah, and I think those three points really are an argument to support women's decisions to be lead parents as well. Either either side, it, it, it fits. Absolutely. I loved the acknowledgement in this article that in almost every case, certainly not every case, but in many or most family cases, there is a lead parent because I feel like it's something that, frankly, and I don't think this is unreasonable to say, I think at least it bears out in uh, the families of most of the people that I know, um, even when there are two full-time working parents, typically the mom will be the one who's the lead parent in the sense of kind of even the things like knowing what size clothes the kids wear and knowing when laundry needs to be done and all of those things. So I appreciated very much his recognition that this is a role that exists. Yeah, definitely, because um, he, I mean, he said they tried to do the 50-50 thing and was hoping that they could their careers would kind of like ebb and flow in sync, but that wasn't possible. So someone had to be the lead parent. I appreciated his perspective. And Zach, I appreciate hearing your thoughts on it as a man, because I, I think my tendency, unfortunately, while reading it was not to be quite as generous only because I feel like the issues that he's discussing as sort of uh, difficulties that he encountered are things that women have been encountering for a really long time. And so it, the parts of it read a little bit like, who will think of the men to me? Um, like the part where he said that he suffered because uh, he didn't think the moms at like practice or in the carpool line uh, accepted him. But then he admits at the same time that he was trying to get work done. So I felt like that's kind of maybe more just a busy problem than a man problem. Um, but it did seem, I, I appreciated the point that he made that there isn't necessarily um, something inherent to women that makes them, in every case, better lead parents and sort of encouraging men to consider the idea that they're capable of it and that it could be beneficial to their families. I thought that was really good. Yeah, I appreciated how he said that this has been his choice. That's what. That's the way that, it's not that, and Marie said, okay, you need to do this. That's just the way that they've decided is the best thing for their marriage and for their family. And I'm assuming she would agree that, you know, she didn't want to be lead parent and that was just not the role that she, that she desired. Whereas he's very satisfied with that, with that role in their family, even at the expense of his career. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said, Mariel, I, I think his recognition that someone will be lead parent is really valuable because just like Anne-Marie Slaughter recognized three years ago in his, in her article, why women can't have it all. Moravchik's basically saying, you know, it's not, but both parents can't have it all. So if you, if you have kids, if you're married, you have kids, at least one of you is not going to have it all because at least one of you is going to need to be the lead parent. And that's going to entail significant professional sacrifices. And I think that's a really important thing because as we think about what children need from their parents as they develop, they need contact time. They need one-on-one -on -one attention to get that. And they're not going to get that if both parents are working 10 to 16-hour days at the office. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing that struck me as really interesting about Maravchik's piece that I felt like Slaughter's piece did a better job of addressing, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but... No, 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 go ahead. Um, no, I was, I was going to bring up Slaughter's piece anyway because there's a point I want to make, but go for it. Gotcha, okay. The thing that uh, struck me about it is that, and he acknowledges this to a certain extent, but... 
his argument is really geared toward people, as was her original Atlantic piece, um, geared toward people with really lofty career aspirations in sort of the highest professional echelons, right? Because there is a subset of yeah, absolutely. the American population where both parents work, you know, nine to five jobs and neither of them is in, you know, nighttime and weekend meetings or whatever, and they're okay not climbing the corporate ladder and they're both kind of equally around and that works fine for them. Um there's also a significant subset of the American population, and this is something I felt like his article just didn't address at all as he talks about oh, how they were able to afford really high-quality child care when their kids were really little and how they've been able to afford housekeepers and all that kind of thing, um, that there's a, po- there's a segment of the population that literally just is trying to keep food on the table. And the question yeah. of, you know climbing the corporate ladder and having impact on national policy and things like that just would never even cross the the minds of these families, many of which, frankly, are one-parent families. Um, And I have a lot more interest, I think, in considering that aspect of this question, Um, sort of how working families that have, that their aspirations are just to provide a, you know, a home and food and clothing and a good upbringing for their kids, um, how they can get by in a world where for those families, a lot of the time, you know, they don't have paid sick leave. So what do they do when their kids get sick and that sort of thing? I have a little bit, I think it's an important question to discuss how things happen at the top levels, because I think there's often a trickle down effect where if you have more, um, family friendly policies and you have a more openness to the idea, as Maravchik kind of talks about, of men taking on those roles and that not being seen as something emasculating. Um, but then they're almost it, needed more at the bottom. Right. I think that it could have a good trickle-down effect, so I think it's important to talk about it at the top levels. But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just such a, you know, the, whatever the hardships of his life have been, and I'm sure they're very hard, I, I, I doubt they've ever worried about making rent, you know, right. or like where they were going to get groceries from. So that's the thing where I think Slaughter's piece, um, she makes a really cogent point at a key part of that article where she says that the the challenges, the structural challenges that we're facing are particularly acute for that subset of the population. I mean, at one point she says, um, you know, this problem is really acute for the 42 million women in America who are on the brink of poverty because and I'm quoting from her, not showing up for work because a child has an ear infection, school is closed for a snow day, or an elderly parent must go to the doctor, puts their jobs at risk, and losing their jobs means that they can no longer care properly for their children, uh, which number 28 million, and the relatives who depend on them. So this, I mean, it, so we can have the theoretical discussion that Moravchik lays out, right? and we can have the, and we should have the policy discussion that Anne-Marie Slaughter talks about. Yeah, and I like another point that she makes, that this is not a problem for women. This is not just a problem for men. This is a problem of work. It's a problem of our businesses and how we operate our businesses. Right. And the fact that we overwork both men and women in every echelon of society, whether they're caring for their children at home or whether they're trying to care for their elderly parent, um, and, or whether they are just kind of getting older themselves and needing to take care of themselves and, and slow down a little bit. It's just a problem of of our workspaces. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting part in her article where she talks about this whole workplace structure. You know, Muriel, you mentioned the structural problems and Marie Slaughter says that this is a product of the, the mad men era or the leave it to beaver era where the man was expected to leave the home, 
go work a full day at the office, 12 hours plus, the woman would stay home and, and tend to the children and the house. And she said that that worked for the time, but that's not the reality that we have now. Instead, we have basically a, a workplace uh, environment that demands these 12 plus hour days from everyone who works in them, regardless of whether or not you're married and have kids or your spouse also works, et cetera. Right. I um, I loved that section of her article. I kept like pumping my fist in the air. I thought it was so good. Um, and the example that she gives about the uh, the consulting firm that thought it had a problem keeping women in the workforce. And mm. I really would. I'm super curious which firm this is. Although of course she doesn't say. Um, but uh, and they found out that an equal number of men and women had been leaving the firm. So it wasn't that they were hemorrhaging women because women were uncommitted or were leaving to have kids or whatever. It was that people were leaving because they were miserable (laughs) because they were being overworked. Um, one thing that I find really interesting about this whole topic, and I always like to point out, it's not my insight. This is an insight that a professor of mine in college made, um, is that the, the whole idea of like the division of labor in the family where one spouse, typically the husband, Uh, is the provider and he like goes out and works and earns a living and brings the money home. And then the woman is the homemaker and she, you know, manages the household and takes care of the children is an extremely recent notion. Like, like, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a mad, and really like mad men as you talked about, you know, I mean, it was around before then, but I think that problem became magnified and solidified. Sure. In the, yeah, in the American fifties, certainly. But I mean, at the earliest, you're going to see it, you know, in the era of that, like, It'll, you only get to the point where you have this like almost leisurely approach to it's as if it's you know people think of it as women quote unquote not working right like oh you don't have to work you can stay home with your kids and I I, I don't think I don't like to think of parenting primarily as a job because I think it's much more important than that I think it's a relationship but the idea that it's like sitting at home twiddling your thumbs is completely ridiculous. Right. And the whole thrust of Anne-Marie's, Anne-Marie Slaughter's article that I thought was so important is that she's saying, as a society, we have to stop and recognize that caregiving, so in other words, taking care of young children, taking care of the ill, taking care of the elderly, is an essential societal task. That it's not just like, oh, well, you do that if you have time for it. Like, if your husband makes enough money so that you can stay home, you do. Um, and obviously children can be cared for in other settings as well, like daycares and preschools, and that's all good too. But the point is, someone has to care for children. Someone has to care for the ill. Someone has to care for the elderly. And it's a valuable and important activity, something that shouldn't be viewed. The line, I can't say it better than she um, does, but she has this line about... Um, how we need to view caregiving as a socially important activity and something yeah. valuable rather than just like something that you either indulge if you're weak and you know can't put off having children which I think is unfortunately the attitude that some people have or like the thing that one of you does so the other one can go and work and I say this as a parent who always has to be the flexible one because at this point in our lives my husband's work is just not flexible at all I mean like he has to be at work when he has to be at work and there's kind of nothing that can be done about that um but I think it's important to recognize that yeah so so let's talk cor- the corrective here because it sounds like we're all in pretty unanimous agreement that Anne-Marie Slaughter and Andrew Mraftrick make great points here 
But what I'm interested in is, is how to solve this problem. Well, from Anne Reed's perspective, it's political action, right? It's, it's changing. Yeah, it's policy. Yeah. Exactly. But so, so here's my concern is that Amory Slaughter, I'll quote here from her paragraph about what we need. She says, we need high quality and affordable child care and elder care, paid family medical leave for women and men, a right to request part-time or flexible work, uh, and I'm assuming she means a positive right enumerated in public law, Uh, investment in early education comparable to our investment in elementary and secondary education. Again, I'm assuming she means public investment, government spending, Uh, comprehensive job protection for pregnant workers, higher wages and training for paid caregivers, community support structure to allow elders to live at home longer, et cetera. And then she basically says these proposals aren't very far-fetched, and she lists out some uh, some concrete policy proposals that President Obama has put forward and uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, has put forward as a candidate uh, to address exactly these types of things. But my concern, uh, and, and I agree that all of those things sound like great things on paper, my concern is that the issue that Emory Slaughter highlights and that Muriel, you just talked about is that this whole problem that comes from one parent doing all the work outside the home and another parent having to be the lead parent in the way that Andrew Moravchik is, that's a pretty modern creation. Uh, and it's really a product of the economy shifting, shifting its center away from the family. Because in the pre-modern era, you had the family as the bedrock system, not just of society, as we hear many people say today, but really the economy as well. And each family unit itself was a microeconomy. And if you have policy proposals that that uh, centralize that system away from the family, in other words, uh, pull all this, all this, all these important parts of these microeconomies away, the, the wage earners in moms and dads into the economy and take the kids out of the home and put the kids in daycares, uh, early childhood, and then secondary and post-secondary education all of that away from the home, then we might have a problem because we're taking away all of those valuable microeconomies that have for so long been a bedrock part of the economy. I totally agree. I blame it all on the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> I'm kidding, <laughs> mostly. But I mean, your, the, your point is very important because this is, and I was trying to make this point earlier, but you made it much better, that this is a recent problem and it's complicated problem because it's come from all these different sources. I mean, I think one thing that occurs to me um, as part of a possible solution in like the, you know, knowledge economy and the tech economy that we have is that I think much less work actually needs to be done at a desk in an office. I mean, there are, there are demonstrated benefits to having that dynamic, but I don't think it has to be um, the kind of thing where it's like 40 hours a week or much, much more than that, where you're sitting at a desk. I think a lot of work can be done, um, from other places, including home. And, um, I think we should stop measuring people's productivity by number of hours put in and start measuring it by how much they produce. I mean, I don't like to talk about people exactly in that way, but I think there's a point where, you know, people sit at their desks and scroll through Twitter because there's not anything they could be doing productive at that exact moment. Like, maybe they could be playing with their kid. Right, Um, right. It just seems like the whole, the idea that, you know, you have home and then you have work and you leave home and go to work um, maybe isn't the best model for all time and all people at this point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, I think that that we could, those are the kinds of policies that we should be passing that would make working more flexible like that. Yeah, I think it's a much more challenging question, obviously, of how do you, how do you, uh, you know, make policy that sort of decentralize work like that? 
decentralizes work like that? I think maybe the answer is just not in policy at all. I mean, I'm thinking recently, uh, or I'm thinking of a book I read recently called The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, uh, in which Isaacson, the same author of the Steve Jobs biography, uh, traces the development of uh, basically the, I think, I think he calls it the digital revolution, but essentially the rise of the computer age. So much of this is driven by innovation, obviously, but innovators who are all about decentralizing, uh, all about taking authority away from the powers that be. And so there's a very interesting component of that with the tech sector. We see the rise of co-working spaces where people are not having physical brick and mortar offices, but really just places where they work around other people. We're seeing a lot more telecommuting. Uh, we're seeing a, a lot of decentralized companies that have multiple campuses everywhere so that people don't have to commute as far. Yeah. So, and then I think that, but I think that even if we get that decentralization, there's still the added complication that people need to kind of police themselves and rein in themselves because you could have a more flexible work in, working environment where you can work at home and you can work any hour of the day, not just from between eight and right. six. Yeah. And then, then you're just working all the time. Right. And you might That's be home, but your kids are, you know, doing other things. Yeah. Just like that Amazon article we talked Netflix about. Netflix too. Yeah. Um, cause I heard an article or an interview with the Netflix CEO who was eventually, um, let go. And they had that policy that you suggested, Muriel, where your, your hours are not, um, Clocks or clocked. Yeah, it's it's based on your productivity, and people are just crazy productive, and so they worked all the time. So. Yeah, and then if you're not productive, you're just like a cog that's not functioning right. well. So you're just let go. Let go. So, anyways, this is just all to say, and we should probably wrap this up. But it's a very complicated problem. And um, listeners, if you have ideas about how we should solve them, we can talk about that. You should let us know, and we can also write into Anne Marie Slaughter because uh, I know she is always interested to hear people's ideas on this topic. Yeah, maybe they'll come on a vernacular podcast. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> that would be awesome. Muriel, thanks so much, thanks so much for joining us again. It was a lot of fun talking to you, as always. It was a pleasure. Have a great night. And we're back to finish things up for season two, episode three. We always mess that up. Season two, <laughs> episode three. Yeah, this has been a good one. Uh, lots of good conversations. Yeah. Um, some fun ones, like with Jordan, some serious ones with Christina and Muriel. That was a pretty serious one, too, but really good conversations. We hope that uh, you got as much out of them as we did. Yeah, please let us know if you enjoyed this episode, what you enjoyed about it, if you have thoughts, questions. Um, Speaking of thoughts and questions, let's go to our inbox. Yes, let's check our inbox. Yay! Hey, we, we got some email. mail. Thank you. We have several emails. This is great. So I'll read one. Um, this one is so there's an editor's note, and it says I transcribed the message below at Gregory's request, so it's really his comment, not mine. So this is from Muriel. Oh, and, I was gonna say who could this be? <laughs> but it's actually from well, so it's from Gregory, but Muriel wrote it for him. Right, of course. So Gregory, her little son, who's almost one, has been listening to her podcast apparently, and he says that he really likes the new season, but he misses the tip of the week. She and he want us to bring back the hashtag tip of the week. Oh, we'll have to do that. Yeah, I think we should definitely Okay, do next that. episode, look forward to a tip of the week. Yes. Here's an email from Nathan, uh, who weighs in on our books conversation when Sally and I were talking about what books oh, we've been nice. reading and are reading, and he says uh, he just read Treasure Island this summer. Ooh. I haven't uh, read that since high school. Yeah, his wife thought it was silly since it's kind of a boy's book, but he says it was a great read. Um, and it's interesting because Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, steals many of the plot elements from other authors. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I haven't read that book either, but uh, my curiosity has peaked. 
Um, and we've got another one more um, from Joshua. And he says, as to our community update question, he does not think we're being ridiculous. He thinks that they, I guess meaning our... Landlord. Landlord is being ridiculous. We should fight the system and stick it to the man slash landlord. Boom. <laughs> there it is. Thank you, Joshua. Yeah, Nathan, thank you so much for your and emails. Gregory. <laughs> well, if you'd like to weigh in on this conversation or any of our previous ones, feel free to reach out to us, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Zach email, with no H, just Z-A-C. Yeah, good point. Your email could be featured on our next inbox section. It very well could. You could be famous on Vernacular <laughs> Podcast. You Check could, us out online, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. If you're in a Facebook if you're into Twitter, twitter.com slash vernacular pod or just at vernacular pod. And if you if, want to be on the show, you can fill out our questionnaire, which is on our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And I that's, think that's about it. it, I think. Yeah. I think that's Thanks all we've so got. Much for listening. It's been a packed show, but a lot of fun. The outro music, as we mentioned earlier, is from Jordan Short. Very impressive musician. He's coming out with an EP soon, and we look forward to talking that talking about that with him in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. All right, that's all we've got here for Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.